Good evening, everyone. Are you guys with me? Yes, you're here. Fantastic. Uh, thank you so much to Felix and the team for leading us. Thank you also, Michelle, for reading so beautifully. I think you must read them every day for us. Um, if you have your Bibles, please keep them open in John 11. We're carrying on with our series in Signs and Wonders, as you can see, and I want to start by apologizing. This is a difficult passage. And even as Michelle is reading through us, there is just so much there that I even, I'm not going to touch on everything. So if you're coming with this expectation, he's going to explain this weird verse, I might disappoint you tonight. But I'm going to try my best. Uh, this evening we're looking at a climatic uh, sign, the final sign, and we could quite easily preach three to four sermons on this. So I'm going to try my best in summarizing what I think is important for us at this time for us uh, out of this passage. I, I know we, we've just been prayed for us, but let's pray again um, as I need that as well. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, your word says uh, that you are good and gracious and kind, and we come before you this evening to be merciful to us. Uh, the psalmist says that your way is perfect, that your word proves true, that you are a shield for all who take refuge in you. And as we just read your word, we pray that it would again prove true in our lives. That as we come to see you, we would see that you are indeed perfect. That you are that shield that we can find a refuge in. And so we pray that we would come with this humble heart even this evening as we try to unpack uh, this particular passage. We ask this in the gracious and glorious name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. As I've tried to prepare for this particular passage and the sermon, I've come to realize that this is no easy text. Here we see something that is not just filled with a lot of detail that is difficult to understand, but its very content is difficult particularly for where we're at for many in the church. Here we see how death ravages a loving family. Here we see how illness consumes a man, robbing him of his very life. Here we see how loved ones have their hearts shattered by grief. And in verse 4, Jesus would have us believe that this is all for the glory of God. Now many present verse 4 as a comfort. In your suffering, in your heart, they take heart. It's for the glory of God. It is comforting, but I still struggle with that. I struggle with that because so many here are in the thick of grief. So many here have had their lives ravaged by death. And it's not easy to say, and it shouldn't be easy to say, Oh, God is glorified in this. I also struggle, struggle with this because this idea of God being glorified is so contrary to how we, in our natural tendencies, respond to grief and suffering and death. But when grief and suffering and death happen, do we not often doubt God? God, you're supposed to be good. Why do you let this happen? Do we not often even despair of God? Where are you? Do some even not despise God? 
refusing to believe a God like this who would allow this kind of suffering. To say in our grief that this is for the glory of God may be true, but it's not easy. And so how do we make sense of what Jesus says in verse 4? How do we make sense of this? How is God glorified in death? How is He glorified in our suffering? How is He glorified in grief? Before we answer that, and for us to answer that, I want us to see three things about Jesus in this sign. Three things about Jesus in this passage that I think would help us towards answering that question. We need to remember, as we saw in John chapter 2, 11, that the signs are manifestations of Jesus' glory. They reveal glorious truths of who He is. And Jesus says here that as He is glorified through this sign, His Father is glorified. That is, the Father here is made known. Therefore, the implication is this. If we want to see God's glory even in grief, if you want to see who God is, the God who is behind suffering and over death, who is involved in it, if you want to see this God, then you need to look to Jesus to whom the sign points. Look at how He comforts the grieving. Look at how He confronts your enemy, death. Look at how He conquers your enemy. And if you do this, if you look at Jesus here with eyes of faith, then I believe you will see something of God's glory even when the world falls apart around you. And so as we consider these, this sign, I want you to see three things. The first thing I want you to see in this sign is the love that Jesus has. The love that Jesus has. Throughout this chapter, we are struck by the deep and passionate and sometimes even violent love of Christ. In verse 3, the messengers of Mary and Martha carry the simple message, Lord, him who you love is ill. That's all the message says. No appeal is even made. It just acknowledges that Jesus loves Lazarus and it's assumed that his love will drive him to help. And not only is this love of Jesus acknowledged by Mary and Martha, but even the Apostle John recognizes this. In verse 5, he says, Now Jesus loved not just Lazarus, but Mary and her sister. See, the Apostle John, by the way, who is the Apostle, the disciple whom Jesus loved, knows and recognizes that Jesus is someone who loves deeply, personally, sacrificially. What is more, even after Lazarus has died, the crowds around him see how much Jesus loved. In verse 35, we are simply told that Jesus weeps. And in this context, that weeping isn't an external performance like the professional mourners that would have been around in that day. No, his grief is inward. It's a heart-groaning grief. As he weeps for his friend, and the Jews even say, see how he loved him. As the Apostle John would say in John 13, Jesus is someone who loves his own till the end. That's what we see here. 
And the point to get is this. Jesus is not some unmoved, uncaring stoic. No, he's one who is marked by a deep and compassionate and heartfelt, heartbreaking love. In fact, in his humanity, Jesus entered into our reality. He has felt our feelings of grief and devastation. Isaiah 53 says that he is a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. How? Well, our passage would tell us because he loves. He loves his people so that when he sees how they suffer searing loss and pain, when he sees them experience the ravages of a fallen, broken world, he weeps with them because he loves them. And realize, beloved, Jesus has not changed. He is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. He still loves his people. He still cares for them. As the head of the new covenant, he loves with an everlasting love that outlasts death and grief. But, but realize that Jesus' love doesn't exclude suffering. Just because he loves doesn't mean that he shelters us from the pain and the heartache of the soul. This is perhaps one of the innate concepts that we have that we should actually start ditching. At times we buy into this idea that if God loves you, then he won't let anything bad happen to you. And Jesus completely shatters that in this passage. Look again at verse 5 to 6, which is actually a profoundly difficult passage. Now Jesus, we are told, loved Martha and her sisters and Lazarus so, or, or another way to say that, therefore, when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. That's quite shocking. You almost want to reread it to make sure that you read that right. We're told by John that Jesus loved Martha, Mary, and Lazarus, and because he loved them, he didn't rush to help them. He could have helped immediately. He could have, with a word, healed him. He's done it in the past. He could have healed Lazarus. Yet Jesus takes his time and allows the friend he loves to die. He allows his friends to enter into a season of sorrow, of heartbreak. He allows that. I, I know this isn't an easy truth to believe, but God at times, because He loves us, doesn't rush to help us, but allows us to suffer, he allows us to go through trials that stretch us, allows us to have our hearts broken. We must not think that God's love is incompatible with suffering. No, often God, because He loves us, allows our suffering. Why? Because He's a loving Father. Who for our good allows pain and suffering. We know this on one level at least. I remember the first time we took Sophia for her immunizations and let me tell you, it was painful because she cried 
and the heart of her father just breaks. But just because we allowed her to undergo that pain and see her cry, wasn't all of a sudden evidence that we stopped loving her. No, to the contrary. See, God in the same, in a similar way, but in a far greater and more difficult way, allows suffering, allows pain. Consider two ways at least, or two reasons why God would allow suffering, just from our text, and we could add on to this. But, but two reasons. Firstly, God sometimes allows suffering to, to personalize our faith. So you see, the death of Lazarus allows Jesus the opportunity to not only teach Martha vital doctrine, but to make that doctrine personal for her. In, in verse 24, we see that Martha has good theology. She's a, she's a good a Jewish woman. She knows that the dead will rise on the last day. But, but that's still too impersonal for Jesus. He, he wants her to have a personal faith where all doctrine is tied to devotion in him or to him. And how does he do that? Well, he uses her pain. He tells her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. So see, Jesus wants a personal faith, and he uses her pain, he uses her grief to accomplish that end. And realize, beloved, sometimes that's what God does in your suffering. He allows suffering to make your faith personal. Not that you have some airy-fairy theology, but theology that is rooted in your heart, where doctrine actually becomes devotional. But secondly, not only does he sometimes allow suffering to personalize our faith, sometimes he allows suffering to draw near to us with his presence. In verse 32 to 33, we see how Jesus responds completely different to Martha, to Mary than Martha. He simply draws near to Mary and he, he weeps with her. He, doesn't, he barely says anything, which is probably exactly what she needed in her grief, to simply know that he's there, that he cares. And beloved, sometimes God allows our suffering so that he would draw near to us and so that we would see that he actually is a God who is near and tangible. Sometimes we get so encapsulated by this rule, by the good of this rule, that it takes absolute suffering to recognize the God who is there. Isn't this one of the promises that God gives Isaiah 43.2? When you pass through the waters, what does he say? I will be with you. Isn't this the experience of God's people? Psalm 23.4. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? For you are with me. Let's be honest. Many times in the lives, in our lives, in the lives of Christians, it is when we are swallowed by suffering, that we see God present. I remember a story of a missionary, I can't remember the name for the life of me, but uh, the story, the, the missionary story goes like this. He was on a particular island of cannibals and he was starting to develop relationships and some political thing happened and it all went south and one of his friends hid him in a tree while these people were searching for him to do things to him. 
And they asked him, how was that night in the tree that he was hiding away? And some of you might know the story. Please come tell me his name afterwards. But, but he tells a story that, or they ask him, how was it that night? And he says it was like nothing he's ever experienced before because in that moment, in that fear, he saw God. He, he felt God's presence. See, it's in those deep despairs. When fear overtakes us and anxiety swallows us up, it's there in our suffering that God shows himself at times to be real. And the point to get is this. It's simple but hard to process. God in love allows suffering. That's what you see in Jesus here. The love that he has for his friends leads him to allow their suffering, leads him to allow their grief Perhaps, beloved, do you, are you here tonight and you struggle to see God's glory in grief? Or well, look to Jesus. Look to the one who loves deeply in suffering. Look to the one whose love doesn't promise a pain-free life, but whose love promises that in your pain, He is behind it and over it and working through it. Look to the one whose love shines even in grief. And suffering. Uh, I know that Romans 8 is a comfort to many, but let me remind you of Romans 8:35 to 39. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. God allows suffering, beloved, but He still loves us in our suffering. That's the first thing I want you to see from this text, the love that Jesus has. The second thing I want you to see is the life that Jesus offers. The life that Jesus offers. You see, when he finally arrives in Bethany, in verse 17 to 27, Jesus engages with Martha, as I mentioned, and there he declares his resurrection promise, right? He tells her, as I said, I'm the resurrection and the life. And what he promises here is this, that anyone who believes in him, even if he dies physically, he will live. And everyone who lives and believes in him will never die spiritually. See, as with all the I am sayings, Jesus here is declaring his divine identity. Remember John 10.30, Jesus is, the one, is one with the Father. Just as there is one living God who alone gives life and sustains life, so to Jesus is the eternal living Son, and He gives and sustains life. See, here, Jesus is actually giving us an anchor for our soul. Despite the death, death that comes to all, Jesus has authority over death and promises eternal life that outweighs and outlasts death. Why? Because He is the Son of God, the divine Son of God. 
But Jesus doesn't just give an empty promise here. He, he proves this promise by his divine power. So in verse 38 to 44, Jesus displays his resurrection power. After being dead for four days, Jesus raises Lazarus with three words. He, he cries loudly and says, Lazarus, come out and behold, there is the man who was once dead. Now, don't miss out the fact, don't miss out on the fact that when Jesus cries out like this, he, he does so because his spirit, we're told, is deeply moved within him. As has often been pointed out with this text, when Jesus says that in verse 33 and 38, that deeply moved is actually implying a hot indignation. Jesus here is, is groaning in anger. He's agitated with fierce emotion. Why? Because of what sin and death has done to his friend. Uh, I think Calvin's comment is helpful. Calvin says, Christ does not approach the sepulcher as an idle spectator, but as a champion who prepares for a contest. And therefore, we need not wonder that he again groans for the violent tyranny of death which he had to conquer is placed before his eyes. At, at the assembly a few weeks ago, one of the speakers used this illustration, and if you don't mind it, I'm going to poach it for tonight. I'm hopefully going to use it a bit better than he did, but, but there is this idea that shepherds often, in order to protect their sheep from jackals and wolves, would buy this very unique mountain dog. Now, this mountain dog would not only be large, but have this thick white coat of hair. And what these shepherds would do is they would let this dog grow up among the sheep so that the dog themselves think that they are sheep. Now, why would they do this? Well, to protect the sheep. And the idea is this, that when the enemies of the sheep come knocking, when the jackals and wolves approach, something happens in this dog. All of a sudden, his canine genes kick in and he starts to growl and bark. Why? Because the enemy of his family is there. And in a sense, that's what you see here. Jesus has become one of us. He has loved us as his own. And when he sees our enemy, sin and death, he growls at it. He's angry with hot indignation at his enemy. And so when Jesus shouts out, Lazarus comes out, he is attacking his enemy. He's overthrowing the enemy of our souls. With a loud, violent, fierce voice, he conquers death with the very power of his word. And what we must realize, what he accomplishes in this sign, what he accomplishes in Lazarus' resurrection points us to what he will do ultimately at his own resurrection, which is far different, by the way. Whereas Lazarus was raised in a normal sinful body to die again, Jesus was raised with a glorious body never to die. And beloved, the comfort for us is this, that resurrection body, that resurrection life is what Jesus offers you. A resurrection life free from sin and suffering, free from pain, free even of guilt and grief and pain. 
Remember how Paul describes this resurrection life, 1 Corinthians 15, when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O death, where is your victory? I missed that one up there. The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. See, the God of the Bible has not abandoned us when death attacks. He has not left us to die eternally in our sins. He has not given us over to our enemy. No, He has provided victory. He has conquered His enemy. And He has provided hope in the midst of death and grief and suffering. Let me ask you again, do you struggle to see God's glory in grief? Look to Jesus. Look to the one who has secured a victory for you in death. Look to the God who provides a living hope. Hope that is called the anchor of your soul in Hebrews. Hope that helps us see heaven and glory even through the clouds of grief. Hope that is fixed in Jesus who promises to deliver us from the body of death, Romans 7.24, who, who promises that he will call the dead and awake them to sing for joy, Isaiah 26.19, and who promises to wipe away all tears in his people, Revelation 7.17. Beloved, behold the life that Jesus offers, a life that conquers his enemies, your enemies. The next thing I want you to see is not just the love that Jesus has, the life he offers, but I want you to see the loss that he accepts. The loss that he accepts. So at the end of the narrative, in verse 45 to 53, we see that one of the results of Lazarus' resurrection is that the Jewish leaders are now thoroughly committed to put him to death. And, and there's a, what I would call a beautiful irony here. It's ironic because Jesus brings his, life, his, friend, his friend back to life at the loss of his own life. And, and it's beautiful because that's how he works salvation for all of us. He brings eternal life to his people at the cost of his own life. You, you see this beautiful irony vividly in verse 50 with Caiaphas. Caiaphas, the high priest, yet for his own selfish purposes, says that it's better for the sake of the nation that one man should die for many. And the beautiful irony is this, that he's right. That, that's God's plan. That's the plan he set before the foundations of this world, that one man should die for many. And realize Jesus accepts this. In fact, he welcomes us. Why? Because that's why he came into this fallen world. In verse 27, Martha confesses that Jesus is the Son of God who has come into this world. Even in Jesus' prayer, verse 42, Jesus himself acknowledges that he's been sent by the Father to do what? Well, he tells us in Matthew 20, 28, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. 
Even in the preceding chapter, in John 10, 17 onwards, Jesus says this, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I might take it up again. No one takes it for me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it up, and I have authority to take it up. This charge I have received from my Father. See, Jesus accepts this charge. Yes, He's the one who has to die for the many. Yes, He is the atoning sacrifice that will save God's people. And not just God's people in Israel, no, God's children scattered across the globe. And it's interesting, in verse 9 to 10, Jesus' disciples fear for His life. They warn Him, if you go back to Jerusalem, they'll stone you. And in response, he gives this very mysterious statement in verse 9 where he speaks of there being 12 hours in the day. And essentially Jesus is saying this, just as 12 hours have been set aside to do one's work, so Jesus has been set aside to do his work. And that work includes being put to death for sinners like me and you. What's the point I'm getting at? The point is this, Jesus embraces his death willingly. He accepts the loss of his life. Why? To save his people from death and to give them eternal life. That's the beauty of the gospel, isn't it? He died that we might live. He called Lazarus out of the tomb so that he would get in. He took our place in his death so that we would live with him eternally. And it's that truth, this gospel, that is at the heart of our faith. It's this truth that we stand in, in which we find comfort. Because we know that the God who has died for us will not leave us as we face death and suffering. If you struggle to see God's glory in grief, look to Jesus. Look to the one who dies for you. Look to the one who sends his son into this world so that you may not perish in your death, but have eternal life. My point is this so far. My point so far is simply this. As we see Jesus as we see how he relates to the grieving, as we see how he confronts the ravages of death, as we see how he enters into the death, into death to defeat death, as we see all of this in the Lord Jesus Christ, we will see something of the glory of God. And so to return to our question, how is God glorified in death, in suffering, in grief? Well, I would suggest these things can glorify God because they're an opportunity to remember who our God is. I realize in verse 4 when Jesus speaks of the glorification of the Father, where Him and the Father will be glorified, He isn't speaking of glory as rejoicing. We often speak of glorifying God as, as praising Him, as rejoicing in Him. But that's what He refers to. He's referring to, to the Father being revealed in this. Who he is being made known. And so God is glorified in grief because it's an opportunity to see who he is. To remember that he indeed does love us in the worst of times. To remember that he gives us the promise of life when death is in front of us. To remember that he has sent his son to die the death we deserve. 
God is glorified in our grieving when we are reminded of who He is and being reminded of who He is, we rest in Him. We make Him our comfort and our joy and our satisfaction. We say with the psalmist, there is nothing on earth I desire. My heart and my flesh may fail, but you are my portion forever. See, God is glorified in our grieving when we are reminded of who He is. And being reminded of who He is, we rest in Him and we rejoice in Him. We rejoice in Him by loving Him who loved us when we were at our weakest. We rejoice in Him by hoping in Him who promises life after death. We rejoice in Him by believing in Him who has entered into the tomb for you and me. How can you glorify God in your suffering, you might ask? Well, make much of God. Love Him. Hope in Him. Place your faith squarely on Him. I almost called this sermon for this evening, Love, Hope, Faith, Meet at a Funeral. Because in this passage that we see, we see as Jesus loves, as we see Jesus who loves, we ought to have our love rekindled for Him. As Jesus promises life, we should have our strength, our hope strengthened in Him. And as we see Jesus as He prepares to die for us, that should renew our faith. See, a passage like this is given to do exactly that, to, to renew our love, to strengthen our hope, to establish us again in the faith in which we stand and in which we are saved. Has that been your response in grief and suffering? Have you loved this God? Have you placed your hope in Him? Have you believed upon Him? Perhaps you're here tonight and you're like the disciples. The disciples in the beginning of the chapter are very doubtful. They, they're very hard-hearted, stiff, slack. And at times you are like that. You doubt Him. At times you are slow to be obedient. You're slow to trust. My encouragement to you this evening is look to the one who has loved you and respond in love. We'll ask Him to revive your first love, to renew that love so that you would live for Him. Perhaps some of you are like the sisters Mara and Matthew and your, 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 your heart is in despair, your heart is broken. May I ask you to set your hope upon Christ. Look to the one who has promised you that he is the resurrection and the life. And that hope is a living hope. But perhaps you're here tonight and you're more like the Pharisee. You despise Christ. You don't want to believe in Him. You don't have faith in Him. And realize this, you are dead in your sins. You are without God and without hope. And what you need this evening is a Lazarus experience. What happened to Lazarus physically needs to happen to you spiritually. And Jesus can do this. He, through His Word and His Spirit, needs to speak into the tomb of your heart so that there would be life. He needs to create a new living heart in you, a heart that pumps with faith, a heart that sets its hope on the resurrection to come, a heart that loves the God who has first loved. And I pray that would be you, and I pray that would be all of us, that as we see this sign, our love and our hope and our faith 
would be established. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do pray that this would be true of us. As we see how Jesus loves, as we see how He promises life, as we see how He enters into the tomb for us, we pray that we would respond with love. We pray that we would set our hope on the life to come and that we would have our faith established once again. We acknowledge at times, dear Lord, as these difficult sufferings come into our lives, as our hearts are broken by tragedy, we pray that you would build us up again to set our hearts again upon you, to see you in all your beautiful glory in the face of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us in this, we ask in his name. Amen.